Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. As uh, most pastors, I really thought I could get through these 17 verses in one week, but it's going to end up taking three weeks. So, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, where Christ is, excuse me, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not grief. Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has to complain against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Thus ends a reading of God's Word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord and, and our God, this is Your Word. And as such, it is meant for our uplift uplifting our our upbuilding our edification it's also meant for our reproof and our correction and as we come to listen to your word this morning as you teach us cause us to come with our hearts in such a posture that we are ready to be changed and corrected by it search us O lord and know our hearts try us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. Amen. As we continue on in our series on sanctification or or what it means to be devoted to God, uh, I just want to ask you a question that I was asked in college, which is a sort of an interesting question. A, A professor came up in class one day and he says, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? You know, and if you stop and think about that, like maybe you're thinking about that right now, you know, how would you describe yourself 
That's not such an easy question. Do you say, well, I'm a, I'm a husband and father? Or you say, I'm a housewife, a student, uh, an engineer, a technician, a teacher? Uh, I, I'm a Christian? How, how do you answer that question? Well, how you answer that question has to do with your identity, how you view yourself. And, and it's important to know who we are because that's how we live our life is based on how we perceive ourselves. If you're a husband and, and you recognize that, you're a father and you recognize that, then you're going to work to provide for your family, are you not? You're also most likely, especially if you're a Christian man, uh, you are going to instruct your children in the Lord. You're going to spend time with them. Particularly, you're going to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. But if you are a man who is a husband and a father, and you don't see yourself that way, then it may be that you would act very irresponsibly and insensitive to your family because you're acting out of how you perceive yourself. Well, it's no different for Christians. The more you understand your identity in Jesus Christ, the more you will live as a child of God. But the problem is, is that many believers in Jesus are confused about their identity. And rightly so, because, you know, there's a lot of different messages out there as to who a Christian is. I mean, just think about this. You know, if you are, are raised in a more broadly evangelical church, most likely you heard the gospel that was something like this, that, you know, uh, you have sinned against God, and therefore uh, God sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. And if you uh, repent of your sin, if you believe in him and, and trust in him, then he will take your sins away. And, and one day you will go to live with him in heaven forever. And, you know, that's, that's wonderful news. But it really doesn't talk about the change that takes place in a person's life. How God makes us a new creation in Jesus Christ. He gives us actually a whole new identity. And unless a person has been discipled, unless a person has been trained in the faith, they're not going to know these things. And so they may just live their life just the best way they know how until that day when they look to death where they will go and be in heaven. But Paul says, that's not who you are. That's not how you are to live your life. And so we read last week in, in the first four verses of Colossians 3 about the identity that we have in Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words... As it says in other places in Scripture, we have been buried with Christ, and we are dead to our sins. Isn't that good news? At one time, we were uh, under the, the mastery of sin. We had no choice but to sin. As much as we may not have wanted to sin, we would, because it was our master in our old self. But we have been raised with Christ in newness of life, and he has set us free from that. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians are excluded from sin, that we never sin ever again. We do, but we don't have to. We don't have to. We are tempted to sin, but Christ has given us the power and the ability to obey him. 
We have, the old has passed away. We all have a new glorious identity in him if we are in Christ. And all the inheritance of his grace belongs to those of us who are his children. And so Paul says to these Colossians, you have this new life. Now I understand you have this battle that's going on in your life between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And you experience that every day in your life, okay? So you need to be reminded of this new nature that you have in Jesus Christ. Because Satan and the flesh want to lie to you. They want to woo you back to that old life. They want you to think that you are powerless to obey Christ. And so they're constantly tempting you. So you need to set your minds on who you really are. On your true identity, which is hidden in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he said you need to have this new mindset that is there. And Paul says, once you understand who you truly are in Christ, not who you've been told you are. And all of us are here this morning, and I'm guessing to some degree we have tapes that run in our heads. We have recordings, maybe from our parents, maybe from our grandparents, or from a teacher that we had, or somebody that said something about us, that we have taken that on as our identity. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about how you feel about yourself because there's some days you get up and you just feel like 150 pounds of sin on a popsicle stick, right? You know, you just, <laughs> you just feel like, boy, I don't feel really great about myself. It's not that. But when you understand who you truly are in Jesus Christ, then live out of that identity. And Paul says there's two ways you, you do that. One way, because your identity... You are united to Jesus Christ, therefore put off the old. Put off that old sin nature. But the second thing he says to do is to put on the new nature that's, that's in Jesus Christ. Now we're just going to look at that first one, to put off the old. And Paul is instructing the Colossians on how to address the remnant of sin that remains in us, even as, as believers. How, how do you battle with sin that seeks to master you in your life? Well, let me suggest several things from our text today. First of all, acknowledge sin for what it is. Acknowledge sin for what it is in verse 5. If you're going to, to put off the old lifestyle of sin, you must see it for what it is in reality. Now, you'll, you'll notice that through these verses, particularly verses 5, 8, and 9, he speaks of the way that sin manifests itself in several different spheres of our lives. First of all, he talks about sin in our private life, in our secret life, in those parts of our life that nobody here on Sunday morning sees. You know, probably if we're, mar if we're married, then not even our spouse, or if we're single, maybe, maybe not even our best friend knows about it. It's those secret parts, those hidden parts of our lives. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, Paul is not giving a comprehensive list in this text about every sin that we have in these different spheres of our life. But, but he seems to be starting from the outward act of sexual immorality, and he moves inward to the inward desires that lie behind that immorality. To impurity, he talks about uh, passions, and then eventually to the root problem of evil desires and covetousness 
which he says all of these things are idolatry. Now, personally, I can think of no other list of sins that is more prominent and, and necessary for us to hear in our culture today than this list that's given to us. What a deadly quartet we have here of sin. And Paul says it must be slain outright. We need to execute these, these sins. We must constantly be reminded that our sin is not just the outward manifestation of our sin. It's not just the sexual immorality, but it's even the inward desires that we have that are sin as well. These desires are a rejection of, of our basic created desire for God for whom we were made. I mean, think about, um, well, let me just say this. In the, in the place of God, what we're really doing is we're deifying something else that God has made. And that's where the idolatry comes in. We're looking to something other than God to deliver us. And just think about the example of Adam and Eve in the garden. Here God had placed them in this gorgeous garden. He had given them everything that they need, everything that their hearts could desire, and God was with them. God fellowshiped with them. He walked with them in the cool of the day. What more could they have needed? And then Satan comes to them, and he tempts Eve to say, you know, did God really say this? And he begins to plant doubts in her mind. He begins to, to question, really, is God good? Is he maybe in some way withholding something from you? And, and maybe God is, is not enough. Maybe what you need is this one tree that he told you not to eat of. Yes, that's what you need. And brothers and sisters, that's what, that's what Satan still does to us today, does he not? He comes to us in those moments of temptation, and God has told us how to live and in, in a way that he knows is absolute best for us and because he loves us. And Satan says, yeah, I think he's withholding something good from you. And so therefore, what you need to do is, rather than feeling this tension of this battle between the flesh and the spirit, just give in to the flesh. Just give in. And when you do that, you'll feel this pleasure. You'll feel this good thing. Just, just do it. And we oftentimes do. We turn to another God, whatever it might be. Anger, loss, whatever it may be. And, and we fulfill ourselves in that, and we serve that master in one sense because he gives us what we want, what feels good to us. But as is often the case with false gods, these masters put us in bondage. And that's where you see people get struggling with addiction and their struggle with sin because that, that sin then begins to dominate them. Because they're looking for pleasure or reputation or whatever it, it is. And so that master becomes a slave driver. And there are those who profess faith in Christ and have been set free from the bondage of sin. And yet they have placed themselves once again under the bondage of evil desires and lust and impurity. They have not realized or, or they have forgotten who they are in Jesus Christ. That they've been set free. And so Paul tells us that we need to name our sins for what they are. 
Now, now that could be a very uncomfortable thing to do, but, but a vital thing to do. You can never overcome sin that you refuse to name for what it is. And it's not enough to refer to our sins as struggles or issues, or even just to call it sin in general, in a generic sense. Too often what we seek to do is to disguise our sins from ourselves and from others so it doesn't seem so bad. So it doesn't seem as wicked and as evil as it is. And so what we need to do is, is when we become angry, you need to come to grips with the reality that you are a murderer. You deserve to be put in prison just like the criminal who abducted a teenage girl and violently murdered her. That's what you are when you get angry and you explode at your children. Or when you view pornography or simply lust after someone who's walking down the street. You are, just, you are the one who has slept with another man's wife. You are an adulterer. Call it for what it is. And when we see our sin for what it is, then, then we name it, we acknowledge it, we put a face on it, and we see it for what it is. And, and, and as we see the, the, the heinousness of our, of our sin, we cry out to God and we say, Oh, God, I'm an adulterer. God, I'm an unfaithful husband who, who loves only himself rather than his wife. Oh, God, there is only one that I love, and that's me. And so we bring to God that sin and ask him to deal with it. Well, it's, it's not just the sin in our private life, but also in our everyday life as well. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, of course, anger, describing here that growing inner anger that a person can have. Uh, I like the way one pastor put it. He said it's like sap in a tree on a hot day, which swells the trunk and branches until they are in danger of bursting. Isn't that what our anger sometimes feel like? Um, you may not be that kind of explosive person. You may be the quiet person that you just sort of shut down when you get angry and you won't communicate with someone. Still, it's anger nonetheless. He talks about wrath, or some translations may say rage. It is that anger boiling over, and we see that in someone who's quick-tempered, or malice, which indicates a a viciousness of, of mind. It's the malignant attitude which plans evil and rejoices when misery falls on the one that we hate, right? I mean, a great example of this, is it not Haman? When Haman was joyful, uh, when he built the gallows for Mordecai, his enemy, he was so excited, he was going to be able to murder his enemies. That's the attitude of a malicious spirit. Further, he talks about slander, which is hurtful speech and defames, which defames a person's character. And if that's not left, if all that's left unchecked, then it could turn into obscene talk from your lips, foul, filthy, abusive speech. Now, don't be naive to suppose that some things cannot exist in professing believers. They can, brothers and sisters. They do. And the reason I can say that with confidence is Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to the church and he's saying, this is what you need to look for. And so he's telling us that the sphere in which we give away the true condition of our heart is to our tongue 
or through our talk or our speech. And these evil attitudes must be put away. I like what the commentator uh, McLaren said. He said, uh, if we don't put these things away, then the heated metal of anger will be forged into poison arrows of the tongue. Listen, let me read that again. The heated metal of anger, that anger that is in our hearts, will be forged into the poisoned arrows of the tongue. And we shoot those arrows out at other people to harm them and to hurt them and to destroy them. So that's the sin of the everyday life. But then third area that he talks about is in the fellowship of the church or in our life with one another. It's what we do here. Uh, what we do is we do ministry together. He said, do not lie to one another in verse 9. Now the verb that Paul uses here does not merely mean the lies that comes out of our mouths, okay? Because he's already spoken about what comes out of our mouths earlier, okay? So it's most likely, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, he's speaking of really, when he talks about lies, he's talking about deceiving one another or pretending to be something that you're not. Uh, he's talking about hypocrisy in the life of, of the believer, believe it or not. And we live in a culture where we're good at this, are we not? Aren't we all about image? Aren't we all about sort of projecting uh, an image of who we want people to think that we are? It doesn't really matter about who we really are. We're just concerned about what we want people to think about us. And so we work very hard to project that image. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. And, and that, this line, is, is why God struck down Ananias and Sapphira and the church. Do you remember? They came in to the church and they sold their property and they only gave a portion of the money, but they said we gave all the money to the church. You know, and Peter's like, dude, all the money was yours to hang on to. Why didn't you just say you're giving half? Why are you lying? And the Holy Spirit struck them dead. First the husband, then the wife. You see, God wants truth, not deception in his church, not hypocrisy. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians 4, 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see, that's who we are in Christ, is this new creature. We are new people in Christ. And those who know this no longer need to pretend. We no longer need to hide behind a mask. You know, because we see what is in our hearts and we know that we are part of the church not because we're, we're fantastic or great in and of ourselves but because of what Christ has done for us and that gives us the freedom uh, to walk in that newness of life and when we do sin to merely go to him and ask for forgiveness or to go to someone in the church maybe that we have sinned against and ask for forgiveness so we don't have to try to hold up this this a holier than thou mask or this religiosity mask to make ourselves look different than who we are. And so Christian fellowship really ought to be the safest place for a Christian to be himself or herself and not to pretend. You ought to feel the most comfortable here, brothers and sisters. These people love you. And, and honestly, I, I have to say, if I can make an observation as a man, I'm not the Holy Spirit, I can't see your heart, but you guys seem to exhibit this. I see freedom in you with one another. I, I see a sense in which you sort of relax around one another. 
And that does my heart good to see because that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Kirk of the Plains. And so thankful for that. But there's, there's another reason that we need to be truthful in the church. Um, and that is for the spiritual growth or the sanctification of the church. Paul says, and if, he, if I could look at Ephesians again, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, Ephesians 2, 21, uh, Paul talks about the sanctification of the church, and he said it involves the whole structure being joined together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. You see that? God is causing us to grow together, and the church will only grow together as each believer realizes that there's no need to hide, that we can be truthful in in our endeavors with one another. Uh, As one person put it so well, a great church demands great honesty. We need to have that sense of honesty. And yet the Apostle Paul recognizes how often those who profess faith in Christ do wear a mask, and pretend to be something that they're really not. And they, what they do is, is people who do that, they view others as something that they are not too as well. Look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and is in all. Now when we look at others in the church through the eyes of the old nature of sin, when we are tempted to do that, what we see is, uh, is what makes us different, what divides us. It might be our ethnicity, it might be our theology, it might be our social standings. You know, that's what we see is sort of more the external things. But Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, once again, that Christ tears down the dividing wall of hostility between believers. Ephesians 2.14 and, and as we walk in this newness of life in Christ, and, and we make a practice of putting to death our sensuality and our covetousness, laying aside our evil attitudes and our malignant speech, we will fully experience this astonishing removal of barriers in our human relationship. In other words, Christ has torn the wall down. Let us not try to rebuild those walls. Let us walk in that freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And walking in the new self brings a renewal that's so radical it changes our human relationships. The new self lived out brings the destruction of racial barriers. There's not racial barriers in the church. There's no Greek or Jew. There's no religious barrier, circumcised or uncircumcised. No cultural barriers, barbarian, Scythian, and social barriers, slave and free. You say, Pastor Rick, really? Well, I'm not saying there aren't those barriers in the church, but there ought not to be those barriers in the church if we really truly understood who we were in Jesus Christ. You see, where our old life of sin divides us, the new life in Christ unites us. And when living in Christ, the things that comes to mind when we think of others ought not to be, first of all, their outward appearance or their theological positions or their worship preferences, but that Christ abides in them. Look at the end of verse uh, 11. Christ is all and in all. What we need to see in one another is the recognition that Christ dwells in them. 
And so, first of all, we need to see our sins for what it is. The second thing that we need to do, and I know these points are a little bit shorter, so don't worry, okay? You're going to get out for lunch. Uh, we need to see sin from God's perspective. We need to see sin as God sees sin. Verse 6. Our problem is, is that we view sin from our own perspective. I mean, we were, we were born in sin. You know, that's what Romans tells us. Our, our previous life before Christ was under the dominion of sin and Satan. And so to say that our perspective on sin could be skewed is really an understatement. And that's why Paul reminds these Christians in verse 6, on account of these, that is the sins that he talks about in verse 5, the wrath of God is coming. Because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. And Paul reiterates this is, is what the Heavenly Father hates. And His holy wrath will be poured out on what He hates because it damages and destroys what He loves. We know this because God's wrath has been poured out most clearly upon the cross. And we see a, a perfect example of His wrath. It is in the blood and the pain and the suffering and the rejection of Jesus Christ. It is in the agonizing cry of Jesus to his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in those things that we see the great wrath of God against sin. And Paul says, take those secret sins that you hide in your life that you maybe even love to a certain degree in your life, the sins that you might be tempted to think lightly of, and drag them to the cross, and, and hold them up to his precious bleeding side, and see what these sins warrant. Be reminded of the wrath of God upon the sin, your sin, then cry out to God to deliver you from these heinous sins. Recognizing that in the new self, you are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of your creator, as he says in verse 10. You are not the same person that you were. And so you cry out to God and you say, God, can I live for this sin for which my Savior died under the wrath of a, of a holy God? Oh God, this sin is awful. How can I, as a Christian, live in such sin? Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, was trying to help them to understand this reality. That we cannot just unite ourselves to sin, because when we do, we unite Christ to that. And he says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ... And make them members of a prostitute? Never! And when we see our sins for what they are, we realize that here we are in Christ. And yet we're uniting ourselves with this old self in Christ. Paul says in verse 7 and 8, Remember who you are. He said, In these you too once walked, past tense, when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. In other words, they don't belong to you anymore. They're not part of who you are. They're not part of your identity. You see, the gospel reverses this. Once we were blind, but now we see. 
In Christ, we have been renewed in the spirit of our minds. Ephesians 4.23. We, we recognize immorality for what it is. Part of the old self to be put to death. And so we must recognize our sins for what it is. We must see our sins as God sees our sins. But third, we must act decisively to grow to maturity. We need to act decisively or intentionally to grow in maturity. Once again, look at verses 5, 8, and 9. Okay, These verses all sort of lay out the list of the different sins that we are to put off. But notice what he says in verse 5. Put to death. That's pretty strong. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have been put off the old self with its practices. You see that sense of urgency that Paul has for the believer. You need to be decisive in, in dealing with sin, we need to starve our sin of opportunity. We need to oppose our sin universally in our lives. This week I was, uh, I was reading about prayer. I actually was meeting with someone to pray with them, and we were reading through sort of this devotional, and, uh, and it was talking about besetting sin. And the author said this, and I want you to listen carefully. He said, do you know what it means to pray against yourself? I don't know that I've ever heard that term. Pray against yourself. He said, do you know what it means to pray against yourself? To pray against the desires of your old nature. Do you do that? Do you pray against the desires of your old nature? That, that God would set you free from the sins that you're wrestling with? He, he goes, he went on, the author went on to say, do you feed or strive to starve your besetting sins? Do you know something of the struggle and prayer and life to overcome besetting sins. You see, we need to oppose our sin in prayer, uh, fighting the battle against the flesh and the power of the Holy Spirit. When I say that the flesh battles against the Holy Spirit in our lives, our lives are sort of the battlefield, that doesn't mean that we're standing back as passive observers. That we're just watching two champions fight. We are in the battle. We are the one that's fighting against the flesh. But we don't do so in our own strength. We do so in the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit that is working in us. And so we are very actively involved in that battle. Does your, does your life characterize that? Or have you taken a more passive view of sin? You see, we need to develop the graces in our lives that act contrary to our sin. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But we need to do what will be costly. We need to, to put it to death. We need to take a knife and we need to kill our sin. You might say, well, but how? Well, I would suggest it might be a little bit like the Nike slogan. Just do it! You say, well, Pastor Rick, that's not really helpful. Well, if you are really struggling with your battle with sin, come, come see me, okay? But it is often not a matter of ignorance or not knowing how to fight against sin that causes us the difficulty. It's a matter of our willingness to fight against our sin. I think we know. We know how to do that. 
And if you don't, like I said, come talk to me, but because I don't want to presume. But I think most of us that have grown up in the church, we know the graces that God has given us. And we'll talk, like I said, about that next week. I think it's like what Ed Welch said. He said, usually when we pray for God to take away temptation, we want him to zap it away while we sit there and play footsie with it. Isn't that true? That, you know, we're asking God to take this temptation away from us. And the whole time we're asking him, we're playing footsie with our sin. We're sort of playing around with it. Ed Welch says, we need to be violent with it. We need to be violent with our sin. We need to put it to death. If you truly are a Christian, then you are no longer the man or woman that you once were. You need to put off the old clothes of the flesh because they no longer suit you. I love the illustration of uh, Richard Sibbs. He was a, uh, a Puritan Baptist minister, and he, and he said it so well. He said, where Christ is, he will drive out everything that is contrary to him. Now, that's good news for us as Christians. As we're struggling, you know, with our sins, where Christ is, he will drive out everything that's contrary to him. As when he entered the temple, he drove out the money changers. So as he comes into the soul of the Christian by his Holy Spirit, out goes those lusts, those desires that were there before, worldliness, anger, rage, those things the soul was consumed with before. Now, they don't just go away easily. Like I said, there is a battle. But Christ, when he comes in, he is driving those things away. And then Sibs goes on to say this. He goes, where these sins are in any force in a person's life, there certainly Christ is not. If, 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 this, if these sins are deeply rooted in our lives and we have given a place to them, then Christ is not in our lives. Because Christ cannot abide in these things. And so Christian, God has made you as a new creature in Christ. He has given you a new identity out of which you are to live. And, and this includes the power to uh, address indwelling sin in your life. And like I said, that doesn't mean that we'll be sinless on this earth. There will be a battle with that indwelling sin. But we're to live out of the power that God has given you. And so this morning, as you prepare to leave this place in just a, a little bit, go with the assurance that Christ is in you and look to him in that putting off of the old. But if you don't know Christ, the Bible tells us that you are in bondage to this sin and that your sin will rule over you. No matter what you try to do to be set free from the sinful patterns of your life, I will guarantee you it will fail. Christ wants you to humbly admit your inability and to cry out to him for deliverance, knowing that only he can rightly deal with your sin. Let's bow our heads and take just a moment, a few moments of silence, just as we just silently pray to the Lord as the Spirit leads you this morning.
Oh Lord Jesus, as, as your children, we, we come to you uh, to, to give you thanks, God, for the words of encouragement that we have read and, and heard preached on this morning, to know that there is hope for us, even as we battle with our sins. And some of us, Lord, uh, have battled with these sins for literally decades, uh, and, and it has been a struggle. Uh, but Lord, it's, it's so good to know that we are not left to our own devices or to try to work these things out ourselves, but that we are Christ, that Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us this week, all of us, especially, Lord, those that maybe are here this morning that just feel overwhelmed by the battle. They have succumbed to it and feel weak and powerless we pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to know that they can look to you and you are there with them. You will, you're with them and you will never leave them and you will not forsake them even in the midst of this battle. But you will give them strength to stand firm against the sin that seeks to master them. Now, Lord, I want to pray also for those that are here this morning who don't know you. Lord, those maybe that up until this point in time, thought that they did, but they've been living their life in a very worldly way and their trust has not been in you. Please, Lord, call them to yourself that they might know the, the, the true freedom of what it means to be a new creature in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, please give them your grace. And Lord, we pray that your righteousness would shine through us, uh, Lord, to a world that, that needs you so much. We pray in your name. Amen.